Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. Today, we look at Egyptians and the Grand Canyon with Micah Van Hus. But first, Danny Faulkner will give us a glimpse of God's majesty revealed in his creation. Staying informed, it's important. Knowing what is happening and why it is important is vital. You can stay informed and know what is happening through the lens of Scripture with the resources found on our website, swrc.com. Timely books and DVDs from the best prophecy teachers, swrc.com. Another great way to stay informed is with our monthly newsletter, The Prophetic Observer. The latest issue of The Prophetic Observer is now available. Each month, The Prophetic Observer has timely articles about prophecy in light of today's events. An excellent outreach tool, many people give copies of The Prophetic Observer to friends and family so they can stay informed. Subscribe to The Prophetic Observer today by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Now, let's go into the studio and join our host, Dr. Larry Spargimino, who's ready to introduce today's special guest. For this program and the next, we're going to be visiting with an astronomer, Dr. Danny R. Faulkner. Dr. Faulkner has earned graduate degrees in physics and astronomy. He has received his Ph.D. degree in astronomy from uh, Indiana University. Dr. Faulkner is Distinguished Professor Emeritus at the University of South Carolina, Lancaster, where he taught for more than 26 years. He is staff astronomer with Answers in Genesis, just a wonderful organization. They're doing a great, great work. Dr. Faulkner, thank you so much. It's uh, so nice to have you on the show again. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me back on. Well, you uh, are the general editor of a book titled The Heavens, A Different View. What, what is different about your view? <laughs> well, you know, usually when they, you see things about the universe around us, uh, like on PBS and other places, National Geographic, it's got a lot of evolutionary ideas right. and billions of years. And so it's time we, we kind of give you a different spin on things, uh, not billions of years, and certainly creation rather than naturalistic origins. Well, you, uh, you dedicated the volume to uh, Tom Vail. Uh, he wrote Grand Canyon, A Different View. How did that inspire you to write The Heavens, A Different View? Oh, wow. It's a good story. Uh, Tom you know, founded Canyon Ministries back, oh, 30 years ago almost, I guess. And uh, it was to provide alternatives to people, Christian folk, to go when they go to Grand Canyon and raft through it to see... Uh, things from a biblical viewpoint, creation, and of course the flood we think formed the canyon and a lot of sedimentary layers there in the canyon. And uh, I had the pleasure of meeting Tom, and then uh, he took me on several trips uh, down the canyon. I, I've rafted in Grand Canyon now more than a dozen times. I do it every year as part of my horrible duty, duties they made me do here at AIG. <laughs> and we, uh, it's a joint venture between Canyon Ministries. Uh, now, now, Tom is kind of retired and doesn't do those anymore, but he wrote a book 20 years ago, um, as you mentioned, Grand Canyon, A Different View, and it has a lot of stunning photographs that he and others took on the trips, and then uh, different people wrote essays about it. And uh, back about six years ago or so, seven years ago, uh, Georgia Purdom, one of my colleagues Mm -hmm. here at AIG, a biologist, she went on a a 
week-long trip in Galapagos. And by the way, they're doing another one next year. Wow. A little different this time, and people can sign up to go with a couple of our staff here at, at AIG. And of course, you know, she wrote a book called uh, Galapagos, A Different View, the same format, same size, same idea, stunning photographs of the islands and the wildlife, along with essays by different uh, creationists. And uh, so, you know, Galapagos seems to be a, a kind of exhibit A for a, a biological evolution, and the Grand Canyon seems to be exhibit A for geological evolution. Well, the universe seems to be exhibit A for, uh, for cosmic evolution and astronomical evolution. So I thought it'd be a, a fitting thing to make make a book in the same same vein, and to, of course, I like to dedicate my books to someone, and Tom was the perfect one for that. And I could tell when he got a signed copy from me, he was very touched. He called me, and he was almost to tears. I think he was so touched, and I was glad. I was glad he appreciated that. So it's the third in the series. So the title is not original to me, but it's a, it's a. It certainly is a good addition to those other two, I believe. Right. Well, Danny, Psalm 19, uh, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So how do the heavens declare the glory of God, and how does the sky proclaim his handiwork? Well, you know, as an astronomer, I must be biased about, about astronomy. It's just one of those really way cool things. I've always loved astronomy ever since I was even start, before I started school. And to me, I've always been fascinated with the beauty that you see in the heavens uh, with telescopes, with photographs, and with your just plain old two eyes. Also, the vast distances involved, they tell us that uh, I believe that, that there, is a, there must be a creator. The idea that this all happened by chance, by itself, naturally, uh, I don't find that compelling at all, particularly from as a scientist mm-hmm. viewpoint. But I, I think the, the heavens do scream out that there is a creator. And, you know, Romans 1, 19, and 20 says much the same thing. The, 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 the heavens do declare that God's existence and his power, because he's far greater than the, the mighty heavens that he's created. And so the men are without excuse. And it's a silent testimony. It doesn't have any words associated with it, but it does speak powerfully to the fact that uh, it speaks to our spirit and our hearts and our minds that there must be a creator, and it just really does demonstrate God's glory. And that's what I've tried to do through the book with the photographs that I and a couple other fellows have taken to, uh, to show that uh, amazing beauty and power that, that's it's showing through in God's creation. Well, yeah, the, the photographs are fantastic, and then uh, you have text that goes, goes along with it. Um, it's certainly not a 900-page book, but it's very attractive. And uh, I think just by looking at the photographs and then the descriptions, uh, it's, it's quite a blessing. I, I really, I'm not an astronomer, I'm not a scientist, but I really enjoyed it. But, you know, we could be very basic. The atheist looks through a telescope at the heavens, and he gives his view of the origin of the universe. What's wrong with his view in your estima- estimation? Well, he's precluded, uh, before he got started, the, the, the possibility that there's a creator. And I've often said, if, if you exclude uh, that possibility, then you're never going to see any evidence of that. You're going right. to dismiss it as, as something else. And quite, quite naturally, you're not surprised then when these scientists say, well, I don't see any evidence for creation. I don't see any evidence <laughs> as a God. Well, because you've already excluded that before you started. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like in a murder <laughs> mystery or a, a trial or something or an investigation of a, of a, of a crime. Uh, if you exclude somebody from consideration, well, of course you're not going to find the evidence that, <laughs> that they, were, they were the culprit, even if they were, because you're going to, to do it otherwise. But here's, here's, the, here's the kicker. If you, let's suppose that something does, 
defy uh, physical explanation, has no physical explanation. I would suggest the creation of the universe, the origin of life are two of those things. If you exclude the possibility of creation, then when you look at the evidence, you're going to try to come up with an answer that is natural, that it's physical, right. it's non-theistic. And it doesn't matter how how cockeyed, how illogical, how improbable that explanation may be, it must be the explanation because there is no other possibility because you've excluded the possibility of creation before you started. Right. And that's what I think of most evolutionary ideas. Many of them are just really quite quite uh, unbelievable when you come down to it, but people have painted themselves in the corner by excluding the possibility of there being a creator. I think at one time... Science was considered the study of the natural world uh, using the five senses. But today, I think science has become a search for natural explanations. And, and of course, this definition embraces naturalism. The assumption embraces naturalism and automatically, as you've pointed out, excludes the possibility of a creator. So if you don't find one, guess why? You, you've the one, you're the one who have suppressed the evidence, like Romans 1 yep. tells us. <laughs> Now, that shift in definition is not subtle. When you and I were in school, we used the former, that you mentioned, the, the latter is now increasingly being taught in schools, and it sounds similar to many people, but it's very subtly telling you there is no creator. The first definition left the, left the idea of a creator completely open. It didn't say there was a creator, it didn't say there wasn't, it simply was neutral in that aspect, but we don't have that neutrality anymore. And in this context, I'll often think of the late Carl Sagan in his TV mm-hmm. show over 40 years ago now called Cosmos. He began it with the state, broad statement, the cosmos is all there is, all there ever has been, or all there ever will be. And many people hearing that statement thought it was a profound scientific statement, but it really wasn't a bit of science at all. It was really an assertion of Carl Sagan's assumptions, his worldview. In order to know that with, with what he said with any confidence, he would have had to step out of the universe, uh, out of the physical universe, and look around and see that there was nothing outside of the universe. He would have had to have done it in, in, in the eternity past and into eternity future. And if, if he could have done all of that, then he would have been the very thing that he had excluded. He would have been <laughs> God. So he couldn't say it with any certainty. He simply said it as his assumption. Unfortunately, many, many people think because a famous scientist said it, it must be true, and they right. never think about what he was really telling you. Well, I think uh, the staff at uh, Answers in Genesis is really wonderful. In fact, the last couple of weeks, I've did several programs with uh, some of your associates. Dr. Jensen, his book, Trace, is fantastic. Dr. Purdom and Stacia McKeever, uh, the book, Crafted, about everything from fertilization to birth. And and it seems like, on the one hand, the world is drifting in the wrong way, away from God. But God has raised up many creation scientists who are highly credentialed with earned PhDs, with lots of articles, lots of studies, lots of presentations, uh, peer-reviewed things that that you've written. And, you know, I kind of look at it as a miracle because here we see evil everywhere. But even even today in America, I think we see a pushback. I think people are realizing that, you know, if you throw the Bible out, what do you have? Well, you have the woke society, you have craziness. You have, I mean, it, it it's death to any culture. You destroy the family, you destroy the culture, you destroy hope, you destroy love. Everything is changed. So 
basically, and, and I've spoken to Marvin about it, and I think he feels the same way, um, we're basically encouraged because God is showing up and, and using people who have brains that have been totally consecrated and dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's a miracle. Yes, I agree completely. You know, it is a blessing to work at Answers in Genesis. I'm always amazed at the, the talent and the ability and the knowledge of the people I work with, uh, not just the scientists and writers that you mentioned, but a lot of our artists. If you've been to the Ark Encounter, you know yes. what our artists can do. And also we have a, a thriving website with uh, just content every day. We have a web, web content team. We have people doing all sorts of amazing things here. Uh, we're even taking on some of the, the culture issues you mentioned, like woke culture and things mm. like that. We've, uh, it's, it's very, very good to be uh, you know, at the center of this organization. It's doing so much to advance the cause of Christ. Well, as we uh, get into the book, and we're talking about astronomy, define some terms for us. For example, galaxy, constellation, nebulae, star clusters, uh, and I used to live up north, uh, Aurora Borealis. So maybe tell us what those, those words mean. Okay, well, we have uh, stars interspersed around us. The nearest star is a little more than four light years away, about 26 trillion miles, if you mm. want to talk about miles. Obviously, that's not a good unit to measure to use. We're, we're uh, part of a, a very large system of stars uh, called the Milky Way Galaxy. Uh, you can see it, particularly on uh, nights coming up here in the Northern Hemisphere, be summer nights. You can see this big streak across the sky if you're in a dark location. It goes completely around the sky. We can, there's a winter Milky Way for us, but it's not quite as good as a summer Milky Way, I don't think. But uh, that is our system. It's uh, about 100,000 light years across. It's roughly round with a bulge uh, and flat, like a disc or a plate or a wheel. And there's a bulge in the center. Uh, you can see that thickening of the Milky Way in the, in the summer Milky Way. That's the bulge at the center. And we're about halfway out from the center, about uh, 25,000 light years or so out from the center of the galaxy. No place in particular, you might think. But the, uh, uh, the Milky Way contains about a few hundred billion stars, probably. And there are many other galaxies out there besides ours. The nearest one of any size, similar to our own, is the Andromeda Galaxy, visible in the autumn evenings with the naked eye. And it's, uh, it's about uh, two, two and a half million light years away from us. And it, too, contains a few hundred billion stars, and there are probably a few hundred billion galaxies in the universe. I'll let you and your listeners figure out how many stuff that might be in total. <laughs> now, within the Milky Way, we have, and other galaxies as well, stars can congregate uh, into what we call clusters. Uh, one of the most famous would be the Pleiades, uh, the Seven Sisters. Uh, in Japan, they call it Subaru. And it's uh, visible in no well, evenings from November uh, through spring. Uh, for us, November through, say, March or April. And it's uh, above the head of Orion. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty... Most people have seen it. They may have not known what they were looking at. It's a naked-eye cluster, the brightest-looking cluster. There are a few others that are fainter. And there are globular clusters. These are uh, much more distant systems than our own Milky Way. They contained... Uh, Oh, 50 to 100,000 stars in a spherical, spherically symmetrical thing. I think they look really beautiful. Uh, open clusters like the Pleiades only contain a few thousand stars at most. And there's some marked differences between them. They're not, uh, the open clusters like the Pleiades are not symmetrical, which means if you spin the book around and look at, look at them upside down, uh, <laughs> it looks different. But if you take a globular cluster, and we have at least one of those in the book, I believe, 
if you spin it around, it looks the same because it has spherical symmetry to it. And I was so glad that the clusters are really beautiful. Uh, a nebula is, uh, comes from a, a Greek word meaning cloud, mm. and it's simply a, 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 a cloud of gas and, and or dust in, the, in space, and they can be caused to glow a few different ways. And uh, oftentimes they have bright stars around them that kind of excite the gas or the reflect off the dust so we can see wow. them. And uh, my, I think probably my second favorite thing to look at through the telescope is the Great Orion Nebula. It's in the middle of the Sword of Orion, and it uh, can be seen with the naked eye, but uh, binoculars or telescope bring out more detail, more light. And it's a beautiful thing to look at and certainly a beautiful thing to contemplate as you look at some of the photos we have of it. Wow. Yeah, the book is, is full of photos. That's one of the strengths. And also the commentary. Well, what about um, uh, the Aurora Borealis? I lived in uh, northern New York for a while in the wintertime. It was just so beautiful. All of this motion in the sky without a sound. And maybe the temperature is 14 below zero or something. What is the Aurora <laughs> Borealis? <laughs> Okay, it's a, it's a glow in the sky, so that's called the Northern Lights. Yes. Uh, that's what the translation in English would be of Aurora Borealis. And uh, for a long time, people didn't know what they were or what was causing it. We have, have a much better understanding now. We have a, a magnetic field around the Earth, and everybody knows about that. We also have an outrush of charged particles from the sun called the solar wind. And as the solar wind approaches the Earth, the Earth's magnetic field accelerates those charges and changes their paths so they don't really hit the Earth so much. They kind of bend around a little bit. And that acts to protect the Earth. Without the magnetic field, um, the solar wind eventually would strip the Earth's atmosphere. So quite an accident, isn't it, that we have that around the Earth? That's what the evolutionists would say. But, of course, we creationists say, well, God ordained it that way, planned it that way for our benefit. But those, uh, those magnetic field lines come closest to the Earth uh, in the Earth's atmosphere uh, near the polar regions. And so at high latitudes, those uh, spiraling charged particles can come in close to the Earth, wow. and about 60 miles up, they can ionize gas in the atmosphere, uh, nitrogen and oxygen. And when the electrons recombine with the nitrogen and oxygen, you get that glow uh, up in the sky, and you yeah. get green and red. Uh, you can see them, the farther north you go, the more common they are. As you go farther south, they're pretty rare. And these things happen near what we call sunspot maximum when there are solar flares are more common. And we're coming up on solar, solar maximum in another year or so. So uh, you can expect to see more aurorae. There was a magnetic storm a few weeks ago that uh, was seen as far, the aurora was seen as far south as Mexico. Uh, unfortunately, here in Kentucky, the northern Kentucky where I live, it was cloudy overnight, but there were people in other parts of Kentucky who saw it and photographed it, so wow. it was quite beautiful. The brand new book by Danny Faulkner, The Heavens, A Different View, gives us a glimpse of God's majesty revealed in His creation. This photo journey through the created cosmos is packed with breathtaking astrophotography, scripture, and short essays on the uniqueness of our galaxy and beyond. Author, astrophotographer, and astrophysicist Dr. Danny Faulkner gives us eyes to see how astronomy speaks a powerful word about God as creator. Every page of this beautiful apologetic resource is filled with amazing facts about the heavens. The heavens will fascinate those who love the science of the stars and provide a great defense for the wonder of our Creator. 
Families will enjoy the astrophotography and learn fascinating facts about star trails, galaxies, nebula, and many other objects in our solar system. Order The Heavens by Danny Faulkner today. Call 1-800-652-1144. Egyptians and the Grand Canyon. What do they have to do with one another? Let's find out from Marginal Mysteries author Micah Van Hus. At some point in our ancient past, did a group of Egyptians while exploring end up settling in North America? While fantastical, the concept is not impossible. In fact, there are a multiple pieces of evidence giving credence to the theory. In 1908, U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt halted mining and timber operations in the Grand Canyon. In 1919, Congress designated the Grand Canyon a national park. Archaeologist G.E. Kincaid, funded by the Smithsonian Institute, explored the canyon for precious metals prior to its designation as a national park. While exploring down the Colorado River, Kincaid noticed strange discoloration in the rock sediment high above. As he explored the area, he found hundreds of steps carved into the mountainside sandstone. He followed the steps up until coming across a man-made cave entrance. Kincaid described the cave as having a main passageway with many tunnels branching off on both sides. These tunnels had 30-square-foot rooms on the sides, which were presumably living spaces. Kincaid hadn't just discovered a cave. He had discovered an underground city. A hundred feet in, he found a massive, several hundred-foot-long hall. In the hall, he found an idol sitting cross-legged with an Egyptian lotus flower in each hand. The face of the statue was oriental. He described the idol as most resembling Buddha, possibly of Tibetan origin. On the urns, walls, and tablets found inside, Kincaid found hieroglyphs, mostly resembling those of Egyptian origin. Kincaid also found a crypt containing mummies. In the crypt, he found copper swords and cups. Now, these discoveries showed that the inhabitants had an advanced knowledge of hardened copper, a long-lost art known to the pyramid builders of Egypt. Now, these findings show that the inhabitants of the cave had advanced knowledge, division of labor, agriculture, and metallurgy, and it showed that they were more advanced than the native tribes that occupied the southwest United States for the last few thousand years. Now, evidence of an advanced civilization with technology challenged mainstream archaeology and should not have existed. Kincaid and his replacement, S.A. Jordan, asked the Smithsonian for a larger team and more resources for further research and exploration, but they were denied. After they insisted and tried to go public with the findings, Kincaid and Jordan were never heard from again. The artifacts that Kincaid sent to the Smithsonian have disappeared. Now, Kincaid's writings are not the only evidence that Egyptians may have inhabited the region of the Grand Canyon. The Hopi Indians inhabited the area for over 2,000 years and have a tradition that their ancestors lived in and emerged from an underworld. I'm going to read a little bit from the Arizona Gazette, an article from April 5th of 1909 about the Hopi Indians in that area. One theory is that the present Indian tribe found in Arizona are descendants of the serfs or slaves of the people which inhabited the cave. Undoubtedly, a good many thousands of years before the Christian era, a people lived here which were reached a high state of civilization. 
In connection with this story, it is notable that among the Hopi, the tradition is told that their ancestors once lived in an underworld in the Grand Canyon till dissension arose between the good and the bad, the people of one heart, the people of two hearts. Manchoto was their chief, counseled them to leave the underworld, but there was no way out. The chief then caused a tree to grow up and pierce the roof of the underworld. Then the people of one heart climbed out. Now, this Arizona Gazette article is also the where we find the story that G.E. Kincaid told about finding this cave with the Egyptian lotus flowers and the idol of Buddha and the mummies and the copper swords. Other tribes in the region tell of a similar origin story. The Navajo and Apache tell of a reptilian race that emerged from the ground, while the Zuni and Akoma tell of a race of giants that emerged from the ground. Now, we study in depth about the giants that inhabited particularly the southwest United States in my book, The Earth As It Was. Egyptians were among the earliest shipbuilders. Engraved over 6,000 years ago on vases are the oldest images of ships, and they are Egyptian. They created the first known examples of sails around 3000 BC. The oldest known expedition was that of Pharaoh Snefru around 3200 BC. In 1992, German toxicologist Svetlana Balabanova discovered traces of cocaine and nicotine on the 1000 BC mummy of the Egyptian priestess Henut Taui. This discovery was significant in that the only source for cocaine and nicotine were from the Americas at that time, hence giving more evidence that Egyptians likely visited the Americas thousands of years ago. Now, when we talk about the Grand Canyon today, many claim that there is a forbidden zone within the Grand Canyon National Park. Within the zone, there are many landmarks with ancient Egyptian and Indian names, such as Osiris, Isis, Shiva Temple, Horus Temple, the Tower of Set, the Pyramid of Ra, the Pyramid of Cheops, the Buddha, Manu, Sheba, and Krishna temples. Though there are no official records, these landmarks were likely named during the POW geographic expedition of 1869, exactly 50 years before the Arizona Gazette article. Now, one can find these landmarks on Google Earth today. Now, were the mines mentioned ever really mines, or were they tunnels as described by Kincaid. Legislation passed in 1987 that restricted airspace over only three of 424 national parks in the U.S., including the Grand Canyon, partially reads. To provide for substantial restoration of the natural, quiet, and experience of the park and protection of public health and safety from adverse effects associated with aircraft overflight. Well, I mean, like you, I didn't know the aircraft overflight the aircraft flying overhead caused adverse health effects. So the government, colluding with the Smithsonian Institute, appears to be hiding yet more evidence that contradicts the mainstream narrative of our history. Is this story evidence of forbidden knowledge having been taught to mankind by angels after the flood of Noah? Did an Egyptian expedition land and settle in North America, eventually becoming the Hopi Indian tribe thousands of years ago? It's not impossible. What secrets are the Smithsonian Institution hiding? Find out in my upcoming book, Secret Societies, Blood Never Sleeps. It's slated for a September of 2023 release. You will find all of my books on swrc.com. So be sure to follow Marginal Mysteries on YouTube, 
Facebook, or any of the other major social media platforms where we study the mysteries of Elohim's awesome creation. The Heavens by Danny Faulkner will fascinate those who love the science of the stars and provide a great defense for the wonder of our Creator. The Heavens, a different view, gives us a glimpse of God's majesty revealed in His creation. Order The Heavens by Danny Faulkner today. Call 1-800-652-1144 or you can order on our website, swrc.com. Tomorrow, Danny Faulkner will be back with more fascinating details about the created cosmos. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and has been supported for over 90 years by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.